What's up, everyone, and welcome to Americana Uncovered. This is episode 14, and a new segment that we're trying out called Tales from the Road. So, um, this segment is, you know, going to periodically going to be happening whenever I go on road trips, um, and I'll be picking different, couple different topics from the road trip and things that I learned from the places that I've been, and uh, going to bring it to you guys, um, whatever I think in- interesting. So this time, um, I drove from New Jersey to the Outer Banks, and uh, this was just recently. We, I, me and my wife went from Friday 5-6 until just a couple days ago, Tuesday 5-30. Um, <clears throat> so we drove through New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina. I never realized how close... Uh, into North Carolina, the Outer Banks were, so it wasn't too far after you get um, into the state that you're actually in the Outer Banks. Um, so it was about a seven, seven and a half hour drive, which wasn't too bad, but um, we left Friday night around eight o'clock, and uh, about four hours in, we made it to Pocomoke City, Maryland. And we camped out in a, uh, in a Walmart parking lot in the car to, uh, it wasn't really necessary to get a hotel. We were only going to stay over for a couple hours and then only had three hours after the, uh, uh, on the trip. So it didn't really make sense to get a hotel. So we got a nice, uh, inflatable car mattress, which worked great, um, the only thing was we went to bed, it was about 12 o'clock in the morning, and it was like 57 degrees, and by the time we woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning, it was like 43 degrees, so we were <laughs> freezing, but we made do, woke up around 6 o'clock and headed back on the road. Um, we also, uh, on top of the three topics that we uh, are going to discuss... We stopped at Stuckey's in Mapsville, Virginia, which is uh, the world-famous rest stop. They're known for their pecans and all their candies and stuff. If you don't really know about Stuckey's, I would suggest going to listen to Family Road Trips. Um, that episode, I explain uh, the history of Stuckey's. I think it's in the second uh, Family Road Trip, too. It's in that one. So that was really cool to... Uh, um, actually do the research and um, talk about it on the podcast and uh, read it in a book and then go and uh, go and actually go to a Stuckey's because this is I think the closest one to me Uh, there used to be tons and tons of them around I I don't believe I think there's like 13 left they're all in that kind of Virginia North Carolina Georgia area uh, South Carolina but um like I said in the podcast when I was talking about them, the uh, they're known for their world-famous signs, and uh, they're just billboards after billboard after billboard uh, when you're coming up to even some 75 miles away. And uh, what I talked about in the podcast last time is they didn't take those billboards down originally when um, Stuckey's got into some trouble uh, and started closing some rest areas so they still the travelers still saw all the signs 
and they pulled up to the Stuckies and it was completely vacant or something like that. So I thought it was just cool um, and kind of funny when I started, started to see the signs. I was like, I hope this place is going to be open. But anyway, uh, the three topics that we're going to get into is the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel the uh the Wrights Brothers a memorial and the Bodie Lighthouse in um Nags Head, um North Carolina. So these three there was also a few other ones that I could um go off on and then this podcast would be like over an hour long. But maybe I'll save those and, and do a part two for um the North Carolina road trip. We'll see how this goes and uh and yeah, I hope you guys like this Tales from the Road. I have a, also a road trip coming up in July to uh, Phoenicia, New York. So there'll be another Tales from the Road um, coming up. <clears throat> I want to say uh, also the rest of lineup, the lineup for June is out. And then for July and August, we got a big uh, special for the two months. I'm not going to release what that is to you yet. But it's a nice uh, two-month special that all collates together, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Uh, enjoy it. So if we do do a uh, Tales from the Road for New York, that will probably come in early September, just to let you guys know. But all right, let's get right into the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. So this is a tunnel bridge that crosses the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay between the Delmarva and the Hampton Roads in the U.S. Uh, state of Virginia. It opened in 1964, replacing ferries that had operated since the 30s. A major project to utilize its bridges was completed in 1999, uh, and a similar project to dualize one of its tunnels is currently underway. 12 miles of bridge and two one-mile tunnels is one of only and it is one of only 14 bridge tunnel systems in the world. It carries US 13 which saves motorists roughly 95 miles and an hour and a half on trips between Hampton Roads and the Delaware Valley Valley completed with other routes through the uh, Washington Baltimore metropolitan area. As of 2021, over 140 million vehicles have crossed over the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. <clears throat> so for the first 350 years, uh, ships and ferries provided a primary, uh, provided pri primary transportation over the waterways. Like I said, otherwise you would have to take an alter alternate route, which would add almost 100 miles to your trip. From the early 30s to 1954, the Virginia Ferry Corporation, a privately owned public service company, managed and scheduled uh, ve uh, vehicles as cars, buses, and trucks, and passengers um, uh, for the ferry service between uh, Virginia Eastern Shores and the Princess Anne County. Um, despite an expanded fleet and large modern ships uh, by the VFC in the 1940s and early 50s, which were eventually capable of as, as many as 91-way trips each day, the lengthy crossing suffered delays due to heavy traffic and inclement weather. 
1954, the Virginia General Assembly created a public subdivision, the Chesapeake Bay Ferry District, and its governing body, the Chesapeake Bay Commission. Um, the commission was authorized to acquire the private ferry corporation through bond financing to improve the existing VFC ferry, uh, ferry service. And in 1956, the General Assembly authorized the Ferry Commission to conduct feasible uh, studies for construction of a fixed crossing. The conclusion of the study indicated that a vehicle crossing was feasible. Um, High-level bridges were initially considered for transversing these channels, uh, but the United States Navy objected, um, bringing the Thimble Shoals Channel because uh, uh, the bridge, because a bridge collapse uh, could sabotage and could cut the naval station in Nor uh, Norfolk, Norfolk off from the Atlantic Ocean. So they really didn't want that. They, you know, just the boats alone. And then, like I said, if the bridge collapsed, that could kind of blow their cover. Uh, Maryland officials expressed similar concerns about the Chesapeake Channel and the port of Baltimore. So to address these concerns, the engineers recommended a series of bridge tunnels, known as a bridge tunnel. Uh, similar in this design to the Hampton Roads bridge tunnel that had been completed in 1957, but a considerably longer and larger facility. Uh, the tunnel portions uh, anchored by four main man-made islands of approximately five acres each would be uh, extended under the two main shipping channels. The CBBT was designed by engineer firm Servup and Parcel of St. Louis, Missouri. Construction of the bridge began in October 1960, and after a six-month process of assemble assembling necessary equipment from worldwide sources. Um, so the tunnels were constructed by using the technique uh, refined by old Singstad with the Baltimore Harbor Tunnel, whereby a large ditch was first dug for each tunnel, into which was lowered a prefabbed tunnel section cable suspended from overhead barges. Uh, the interior chambers were filled with water to lower the sections, and the sec when, when the sections aligned, and bolted together in, by divers, the water was pumped out and the tunnels finally covered the earth. So this was a, I'm sure, <coughs> a not easy process. Um, I mean, not as maybe as risky as uh, building the tunnels for, um, you know, the trains going into Manhattan and stuff with all the pressure and everything pumped into the long stretches i mean they were these were a mile um but nonetheless it was probably a, a lengthy and long task to get these uh, tunnels built in 1999 a second lane for the bridge tunnel was added the original lane was repaired and restored after 35 years of use the new lane added wider shoulders and a southbound portion uh, facilitated needed repairs and provided protection against total closure should a trestle be struck by a ship or otherwise be damaged, which has occurred twice in the past. That's not comforting. Uh, 
partially for this reason, the partial uh, the parallel trestles are not uh, located immediately adjacent to each other, reducing the chance that both would be damaged in a single accident. So you could see they kind of start out together and then they go out in like a wishbone uh, formation and then come back for the tunnel and then spread back out. Um, construction for another tunnel has begun in 2017 and was supposedly um, going to be done by 2023, but delays have pushed back the opening date until 2027. So they have a, um, a fishing pier and it looks like a stop-off place, I think, after the first tunnel and all that was under construction. I don't know if that had to do with the, um, the other um, tunnel being worked on or what but there was construction the whole time on the bridge um, at the northern end uh, a parallel chesapeake channel tunnel will be added to finish the entire length and to become the uh, four-lane highway from shore to shore this project is marked to begin in 2035 which would possibly be open for traffic in 2040 assuming there are no setbacks or delays so probably closer to 2050 but um I never really knew about this bridge at all, and usually when I drive south, it's just on um, I-95, so this was a whole different route. This kind of, like, it was crazy that you essentially, besides a few main highways, you kind of took, like, a two-lane uh, Route 1 uh, all the way to North Carolina, which that's the way you used to have to travel south back in the day before... Um, I-95 came along, uh, but this, we looked at the bridge online first, and we saw, you know, it's just, if I'll post the overhead view of the bridge, but it's just literally uh, a lane that disappears underwater, and then the other lane pops up, so it was really cool to see, and then once we got to it, it was really cool, we wanted to do it in the daylight, that's one of the main reasons we slept over, um, <clears throat> the night before so we wanted to see it during the day and uh it was both times we crossed there and back it was very um eerie because it was very overcasting uh, very windy and there was just a thick blanket of fog you could barely even see anything in front of you so not only have we never been on it we didn't know what was in front of us so it was a cool adventure to uh drive over that bridge and it's crazy to think that's only one of 14 uh, bridge tunnel systems in um in the world not just the u.s so that was pretty interesting um i mean a total total uh convenience this bridge tunnel system was uh instead of seven seven and a half hours that we were looking to be close to nine hours if it wasn't for this and we had to take alternate routes and or you have to load your truck up on a ferry and stuff and and wait for that however long that took so this was definitely a, a breakthrough in um travel north or south when you're in the chesapeake when you need to cross the chesapeake bay and um i just think it was a really interesting thing i'll definitely post the pictures because it's it's really cool to look at and then uh hear hear about it so uh it's going to be crazy to see what it looks like with a four lane um tunnel who knows if that will actually ever happen or, or you know maybe they'll have the new tunnel open and they'll close the old one for probably renovations at that point and it will be you know 
2075 when all four are open. <laughs> but um, anyway, cool nonetheless. Uh, so for the next topic, we're going to get into the Wright Brothers uh, Memorial in um, Kill Devil Hills. So the Wrights Brothers Museum, like I said, is located in Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina, right on the Outer Banks. Um, this was the first day we got there was fr uh, Saturday morning after we woke up and drove another three, three and a half hours. This was around like eight or nine o'clock, uh, actually like 10 o'clock in the morning. And we couldn't check into our Airbnb until four o'clock. So we had some time to kill and this was actually right across the street from where we were staying. So when you first get the, into the uh, National Park, you drive up. There's a welcome center and everything. We drove past that and drove straight to the monument, which is a huge um, hill that you can walk up. There's sideways paved to walk up. And then there's a huge uh, a m memorial for um, the Wright brothers uh, where this is actually the actual hill that they um, stood on and and ran their glider off of it um, into the field across the street. Uh, so before they um, the monument, like I said, now is um, it's a big grass hill, but before it was all sand. So even their different attempts, they had to um, bring carry their plane up um and and just sink into the sand by the time they got up there it was uh crazy that you know you know how it is to walk in sand but to walk in sand dunes uphill with a, pl a plane um is insane but uh, 25 years later they started adding um grass and dirt to compact um the hill so it wouldn't erode or anything and and they put the memorial and the monument up there so they could preserve um the Wrights brothers accomplishment uh the same thing when we got up there it was uh just the wind was whipping it was nasty out i can only imagine um what it was like jumping off that um over 120 years ago um you gotta have some uh courage to do that I, I definitely wouldn't be in that position. Um, <clears throat> but first, we're going to get into a little bit of the predecessors of flight. So uh, George Cayley, um, from 1773 to 1857, he was the father of aerodynamics. Um, his 1804 glider, mod, uh, glider model incorporated the most design elements of the modern airplane. You have Alphonse uh, Pen Pinyard in 1850 to 1880, he built uh, a rubber band powered uh, Plano 4 model, and its 131 foot foot flight was the first of uh, inherit inheritably stable aircraft. So his his uh, model was the first kind of thing you could kind of picture as a plane. It really wasn't too much of a plane, but it's kind of the general concept. Uh, you have Otto Littenthal in 1884 to 1896. He was the first true uh, glider pilot. The Wrights were inspired to take up his quest to get in intimate terms with the wind. So his is more of like a kind of like a parasailing thing. It's it, it literally looks like he's just sitting in a 
a little chair with his arms uh, connected to these wings, and he's flying, you know, not not so much as a plane, but more of as a, a bird. Uh, then you got Octave Chanteau. In 1832 to 1910, he gathered and dismantled uh, aeronautical knowledge. He encouraged the Wrights who used his bi uh, biplane glider design. So this was kind of, it's similar to autos, is they're kind of sitting there holding onto the wings, but then there's a whole nother um, top part of the plane and um, a propeller, um, kind of a, um, like not a propeller, um, a rudder kind of system in the back to kind of guide you where you want to go. So now on to the Wright brothers themselves. Um, so in 1900, they were uh, they were confident their design was sound. The Wrights built a 17 foot glider with an unusual forward elevator. Uh, they went to Kitty Hawk hoping to gain flying experience, but the wings generated less lift than expected, and they flew the glider mostly as a kite. Uh, working the control surfaces from the ground, Wilbur's total time aloft in free flight was only 10 seconds. They would go home uh, and somewhat discouraged, but convinced that they had achieved lateral and long longitude control. In 1901, increased uh, camber and wingspan. This was the year the Wrights sharpened their focus, trying to become, trying to overcome the lift problem. They increased the camber of the 1901 glider. They also lengthened its wingspan to 22 feet from 17, making it the largest glider uh, anyone had attempted to fly. But their new Kill Devil Hills camp uh, lift was still only a third of what they predicted. Um, from Lintenthal's data upon which the wing design was based. Uh, the glider pitched widely, uh, wildly, climbing into stalls. <clears throat> when they returned to the earlier camber, uh, they eventually achieved uh, longitude control and eventually glided 335 feet. But the machine was still unpredictable. When the pilot raised the left wing to initiate the expected right turn, the machine instead tended to slip to the left. Uh, this failure and realization that their work had relied on false data brought them to the point of quitting, but instead they built a wind tunnel and produced their own data. So they, the, they were taking from these guys, their predecessors, like I said before, but they got to the point where they were saying, you know, maybe this isn't all true, and uh, maybe it's not working uh, totally, so maybe we should add our uh, two cents into this research. Uh, in 1902, the glider embodied the Wright's research. They gave it a 32-foot wing um, and added vertical tails and counteractive uh, to counteract the adverse yaw, which the yaw was when it would turn left. Uh, when they would turn it left, it was supposed to go right, and it would go reverse, so that's what they fixed. Uh, the pilot moved a hip cradle to warp the wings. Some 400 glides proved that the design was workable, but it was still flawed. Sometimes when the pilots tried to raise and lower the wings for coming out of a turn, the machine instead slid sideways towards the wing and spun, spun onto the ground. 
Orville suggested that a movable tail uh, could be added to counteract this tendency. Uh, after Wilbur thought to link the tail movement to the uh, warping mechanism, the glider could be turned and stabilized smoothly. If others had thought about steering at all, um, it was by rubber marine anthology and did not work in the air. The Wrights saw the control and stability were related, uh, and the plane turned by rolling. 600 more glides that year uh, satisfied them, and they were about to have the first working airplane. So 1903, the Wrights um, had had to power the aircraft. Uh, gasoline engine technology had recently advanced to where it is uh, use in airplanes was feasible. Unable to find suitable lightweight commercial engine, the brothers designed their own. It was uh, cruder and less powerful than Samuel Langley's, uh, but the Wrights understood that the relatively little power was needed um, with efficient lifting surfaces and propeller propellers. Such propellers were not available, however. Using their air tunnel data, they designed the first effective air, airplane propeller, one of their most original and purely scientific achievements. Uh, returning to Kill Devil Hills, they mounted the engine on a new 40-foot, 605-pound flyer with double tails and elevators. The engine drove two pusher propellers with chains, one cross to make the props rotate opposite directions, a counter, uh, counteract to twisting tendencies in flight. A bulky engine and a broken propeller shaft slowed them until they were finally ready on December 14th. Wilbur won the coin toss but lost his chance to be the first to fly when he, uh, when he oversteered with the elevator after launching uh, leaving the launching rail. The flyer climbed um, too steeply, stalled, and dove into the sand. The flight, uh, the first flight would have to wait for repairs. So um, three days later, in December 17, 1903, they were ready for a second attempt. The 27-mile-an-hour wind was harder than they preferred because their predicted cruising speed was only 30 to 35 miles an hour. The headwind would slowly uh, would slow their ground speed to a crawl, but they proceeded anyway. With this sheet, they signaled to the volunteers uh, nearby at the life-saving uh, life station that they were about to try again. Now it was Orville's turn. Remembering Wilbur's experience, he positioned himself and tested the controls. The stick that moved the uh, horizontal elevator controlled climb and descent. The cradle that he swung with his hands wrapped around the wings and swung vertical tails, which combination turned to uh, turn the machine. A lever controlled the gas flow and airspeed recorder. The controls were simple and few, but Orville knew that he ha would have to take all his finesse to handle the new, much heavier aircraft. <clears throat> So at 10.35, he released a restraining wire. The flyer moved down the rail as Wilbur steadied the wings. As Orville left the ground, John Daniels from the life-saving station snapped the shutter on his preset camera, capturing the first image of an airborne aircraft, with Wilbur running alongside. After the flyer was unruly pitched up and down, Orville 
uh, overcompensated with the controls, but he never kept it aloft until he hit the sand about 120 feet from the rail. Into the into the 27 mile an hour wind, the ground speed had been between 6.8 miles per hour for the total airspeed of uh, 34 miles an hour. The brothers took turns again flying three more times that day, getting the feel and the controls, increasing their distance with every flight. Wilbur's second flight and the fourth the fourth and last of the day was an impressive 852 feet and 59 seconds. So this was the real thing, transcend, uh, transcend power, hops, and glides that others had um, not achieved yet. The Wright's machine had flown, but it would not fly again. After the last flight, it was caught by a gust of wind rolled over and damaged beyond easy repair. Their flying season was over. The Wrights had sent their father a matter-of-fact telegram reporting that the modest numbers behind their great accomplishment. So the first attempt, like I said, was um, 120 foot in 12 seconds. The second attempt was 175 foot in 12 seconds. The third attempt was 200 foot in 15 seconds. And the fourth attempt was a astounding 852 foot in almost one minute of flying. So it's cool. Um, like I said, you could stand on the monument. Uh, up on top of the hill and then you walk towards the um, welcome center and they have all the uh, all the things inside with a replica of the plane but if you walk straight into the field um, they have um, little markers for each attempt so you could kind of get the whole gist of how far it really was and it's crazy to see the first three little markers are literally like within like I said you know 25 foot of each other and then the fourth one is like you got to walk like a football field down to get to it so that's pretty cool um i just thought this was really interesting i didn't when i saw that their um the museum and memorial was right next to where we're staying i really didn't have that much of a interest in going but i'm certainly glad i went um this is just a great experience and to think like this was in 1903, it's 2023, so 120 years ago, like, that's not that long ago that we didn't have airplanes, and I know that sounds dumb to say, but it, if you put in context to other things um, that we've talked about on this podcast, it's, it's relatively new, and now, you know, even in the 60s and 70s, people were flying, like, you know, it was nothing really not that it you know it was still a luxury at the time but at being only you know 50 60 years old it's crazy how much we trust airplanes and maybe that's just me overthinking but um we've come a long way and, and without the Wright brothers who knows where would we be maybe we'd be still be sitting in chairs with bat wings flying through the country but uh i'm definitely grateful for that we are not doing that because i would not be um so that's really it for the Wrights Brothers uh, Memorial Museum. Next, we're going to go into our final segment, which is the Bodie Lighthouse in Nags Head, North Carolina. So in 1837, the federal government sent Lieutenant Napoleon L. Coste to examine the coastline for potential lighthouse sites that would supplement the existing one on Cape Hatteras. Uh, Coste determined that the southbound ships were in great need of a beacon on or near uh, Bodie Island, which 
they could fix their position for navigating the dangerous cape. He punctuated his recommendation with the statement that more vessels are lost there than any other part of our coast. Francis Gibbons was contracted as an engineer. Um, the project's overseer was a former customs official named Thomas Blunt, who unfortunately had no lighthouse experience at all. Uh, this proved to be disastrous when Blunt ordered an unsupported brick foundation. As a result, the 54-foot tower began to lean with only, within only two years after completion. Um, numerous expensive repairs failed to rectify the problem of the lighthouse, and it had to be abandoned in 1959. So it didn't have a great, great run there at all. Uh, the second lighthouse fared to be a little better than its wobbly predecessor. Though funded, contracted, and completed in prompt fashion at the nearby site in 1959, it soon succumbed to an unforeseen danger, the Civil War. Uh, fearing that the 80-foot tower would be used by Union forces, retreating um, Confederate f troops blew it up in 19, uh, sorry, 1861, so this one only lasted another two years. Um, in 1871, construction began on the third lighthouse. Uh, the first two Bodie Island lights had been located uh, south of the uh, Oregon Inlet, actually located on Pea Island. Um, the new 15-acre site purchased by the government for $150 from John Etheridge was north of the inlet. Uh, work crews, equipment, and materials from the recent lighthouse project on Cape Hatters were used to build a necessary loading docks, dwells, and facilities. Uh, government contracts brought bricks and stones from Baltimore firms and iron works from New York. Uh, construction of the tower proceeded, uh, proceeded smoothly, and its first, its light, uh, magnified by a powerful first-order Fresnel lens on October 1st, 1872, the keeper's uh, quarters duplex was completed soon thereafter. The light was electrified in 1932, phasing out uh, the need for on-site keepers. Finally, all of the uh, light stations properly uh, except the tower was transferred to a National Park Service in 1953. The keeper's duplex has since undergone two historic restorations, the last having been completed in May 1992. The building now serves as a ranger's office and visiting center for Cape Hatter's National Seashore. The most recent restoration of the lighthouse was completed in uh, sorry, 2013. Tucked away between tall pine trees and freshwater marshlands, the Bodie uh, Island light presents anything but typical lighthouse setting. Though not as well known as its neighbors, it remains an important part of local history and a favorite spot for visitors. And still every evening, amidst the water towers and blinking radio antennas of modern development, its powerful light beams out across the darkening waves, keeping the silent watch over the treacherous waters known as the graveyard of the Atlantic. So this, um, I didn't really know the uh, popularity of all the lighthouses, but um, this one was the closest, and it was on, a, you had to drive off a scenic byway to get to it. And the next house, the Cape Hatters, was another like hour away, so we decided to settle on this, not settle, but, you know, this one was, we got there uh, early in the morning before the 
the office was even open so we couldn't go up uh, to the top of the lighthouse but it was just the um the sheer like height of the uh, lighthouse alone was just outstanding and then they also had a, um, a dock you can go off to on the side right on the water and kind of oversee what they would see from the lighthouse um the the lighthouses in general in north carolina is just like a huge historical um aspect of the outer banks and and all that alone so it was just really cool to see we saw two of the lighthouses this is the one we actually visited we only drove past the other one in Kerala um but it was it was really cool to see um some other things we saw were like I said in Kerala North Carolina we took a a, a guided tour through um a part of route 12 which was the same one that kind of goes up and down the uh, outer banks but the only part of this is the road ends and it actually turns into you're just driving on the beach but it's technically route 12 north and it's uh there's um houses back there where you have to drive through there's no street signs you just got to drive through the little opening in the dunes and it's kind of like a whole different world back there there's a neighborhood back there but no like I said no street signs no streets just houses up on stilts and the craziest thing is there's wild Spanish mustangs just walking around over a hundred of them that left completely to the wild they're not tagged you can't feed them they they survive on their own they have for that long they're not you know tame they're not they don't need to do any maintenance on them they they survive themselves um this was actually the first horse um brought to america by spanish settlers um in the 1500s so they are the last breed of these kind of horses um in america and like i said the first ones they are completely wild they're not to be touched they're not to they have a little um group that drives around and just you know kind of monitors them make sure they're all right but they don't really you know if they have a baby or whatever I guess they'll assist on that or you know other medical needs but other than that they are completely wild um so maybe we'll touch on that um whole aspect in the lighthouse over there in the Curatuck Curatuck lighthouse is what it's called it's all brick one maybe we'll touch on that and a few more other aspects if i ever do a part two of this which probably will but uh i hope you guys like this new segment we're gonna be uh kind of it's kind of learning on the fly for me doing the research while i'm there instead of looking it up online and doing it and then bringing it to you guys so i enjoy doing this i hope you guys enjoyed listening to tales from the road and um yeah, stay tuned. Next Friday, we will be going over the my favorite band, The Grateful Dead, their classic album, American Beauty, and um, the whole Americana aspect on that we'll bring to you guys. And it's not just, um, I don't know, maybe some people I know are put off by The Grateful Dead. Some people love it. I feel like there's no middle ground. It's either you love it or you don't know anything about it and rather not. So hopefully I could bring some new um people on to the grateful dead and uh we're gonna be going over that like i said with the uh, american beauty and uh that's really it 
So I hope you guys enjoy. Like I said, um, have any questions, follow me on Instagram at Americana underscore uncovered. Uh, you can also email me at Americana uncovered at gmail.com. Any questions, recommendations, anything like that. And I uh, hope you guys enjoy your week. I'll see you soon.